Well, praise God. It's good to see so many children uh, going out for our junior church uh, that we fed. None other than the scriptures, the word of God. And it's so good, again, to come together um, to look at this uh, scripture that happened to be again right here. And last time we were, we, we were together, we saw the, the, uh, the apostles were arrested. And the reason why they were arrested is because of the jealousy that happened to be again of the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin. And we realize that jealousy is an internal sin, isn't it? Where we're looking at something externally and we really want it, we really crave that thing. And we realize what's taking place in the heart, again, happens to be idolatry. It's the idolatry of self. I deserve this. I want this. I should have this. And there's a fixation on the things that happen to be again above. So much so that we do not see the Lord of glory that happens to be again above. And we can see this. They're put in jail overnight and we see this miracle takes place that the angel of the Lord comes down and he releases them. He takes them again out and how he did it, uh, we're really not told in the text because it is absolutely morning. Because uh, the, fair, the Sadducees asked for the apostles to be brought before them in the morning and the prison door is still locked, the guards are still there. So we're not told how this miracle um, occurred. Were they translated to a different location? Uh, did they just pass through the doors, or did the door open and unlock again, and they pass through the guards? We're really not told in that passage of Scripture what had happened. But what we are told is that they are given a commission, and a commission is to go into the temple. Remember what the temple is. It's the seat of power of these religious leaders, and they are to proclaim, here it is, the, the, all this life. In other words, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen from the grave. And it's amazing because when you look at that with the rise of opposition in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we realize that the mandate that God has given us, again, what, what he's given to the church to make and mature disciples for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ has not changed. It's the same, again, as it always has been. Now, think about, think about the religious leaders. As they went to bed that night, they probably had a good night's sleep. I mean, the problem that they've had, you know, the, the popularity that they want, the reverence that they want from the people has been taken care of. The apostles have been arrested. They'll have a trial the next day. They'll condemn them. They'll put them to death, and all will be done. And no doubt they had a great night's sleep, not aware again of the things. They convened the court. Uh, during the morning hours, they ask the prisoners to be brought forward, and all of a sudden, they're told that the prisoners are not there. You know, the prison doors are locked, the guards are still there, but I have a sneaky suspicion that they thought this was an inside job. You know, and what had happened is the apostles had fled. They are gone. I mean, why would they stick around when their life is in jeopardy? They're gone. The problem's gone. Let's get on with different business. But then word comes to them in verse number 25, and it says, And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And you can almost imagine the frustration and the anger of these men who again hated the Lord Jesus Christ, who condemned him to, to uh, die and want nothing to do with him. And in their quest to silence that whole message, they commanded them to be brought forward again, and the disciples were not there. The disciples uh, were true to the mission that God had given them, but the disciples again ignored everything that Sanhedrin had done. Now, I don't know if you caught it when Richard read the text this morning, uh, but the disciples didn't have to come. 
You know, they didn't have to come to the Sanhedrin. You know, here's a temple, and they're filled, filled with people. And these are pro-apostles. In other words, they're pro-Jesus people. They're listening to the preaching. They're responding to the preaching of God's word, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And the popularity of these men in the temple is, 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 is high. You know, so much so that the captain of the guard thinks, if I try to take them by force, you know, I'm going to be stoned. I'm going to lose my life. But here's the amazing thing. The apostles decide to go. You know, and they go. And think of that. Because you could go back a couple months. And what happens the night in which Jesus is betrayed? You know, all of them fled. All of them fled because of fear. And here's the great question we should grapple with right here in our text. Were the disciples fearful at this time? You know, were they overcome with the, with the emotion of dread to be before the Sanhedrin? And I believe the, the answer to that is absolutely not. You know, I think, again, one of the greatest problems in our Christianity today is we forget who we are. We forget, again, more importantly, who Jesus is. It, isn't it amazing? Because so often we're gazing, so often we're worshiping, so often we're singing hymns of praise to this great God. So often we're reminded of who he is and our great hope. And this is what we do. We have our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can conquer us. And then something comes into our life. Some sort of trial, some sort of difficulty. And what happens? This difficulty, this trial becomes bigger than Christ, if you can imagine that. And all of a sudden when that happens, what happens? Fear enters our soul. Well, you can imagine, here they're concentrated, here, here they saw the resurrected Christ, here they saw the ascension into heaven. And what are these puny men? They understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is absolutely sovereign and nothing can come into their life, nothing that can happen in their life that has not been ordained by this great and glorious God that happens to be again above. You know, and so they're sitting in their midst. And let me say that this would have been an intimidating setting. You know, uh, the Sanhedrin would have been oval, and they would have been on platforms, seated, seated above, and the apostles would be down there. They, they would be standing to defend their case. You know, and you can see the interrogation was started by the high priest in verse number 28 when he says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. You, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You know, I, I think it's amazing because this is a formal trial that happens to be going on. And the one thing that they never try to do is try to prove or disprove the merits of the Lord Jesus, that he's resurrected from the grave, that he truly is the Messiah. What they want to do is silence the name of the Lord Jesus. I think it's also amazing that one of the charges now is not only that you've disobeyed us, but you're trying to bring the blood of this man. Remember, they can't say the name Jesus. They hate him so much. But you're trying to bring the blood of this man on us. And it is amazing because they are guilty, aren't they? But we all have that internal lawyer that happens to be in us. When we sin, we come up with some excuse, some sort of rationale to show that we are righteous. And please, please don't misunderstand the text. The Sanhedrin believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're righteous. You know what they're concerned with? You plan to bring this blood on us? It's the public perception. You know, guilt before other people, shame before other people. You know, the others, individuals, remember, they're lusting for this. They're jealous for what the disciples have. You know, so often in our life, we are more, 
We feel more weight and more shame for our sin when it's exposed before others than it is before this glorious God, this glorious Savior that happens to be again above. They were guilty. You know, there's no way to say that they weren't guilty. You know, you remember the trial before Pilate, and Pilate says, you know, well, what has he done? And he realizes that they're after blood. He realizes that he's in a tough place because he wants to keep his position. So he takes some water, washes his hands of the whole affair just before he pronounces Jesus Christ guilty and, and uh, just before he puts him forward. And listen to, to Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 25 because it says, And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Right? They realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are guilty. And what comes right after this? You know, right after this is the Apostle Peter speaks on behalf of all the apostles that happen to be right there. And it's an amazing answer because it's brief, it's condensed, it is packed full of powerful truth, and he uses the best words in this limited opportunity that he has. Again, this brief window to make known Jesus Christ, him crucified for sinners, such as you and I, yea, risen from the grave. You know, and, and I love this because when you look at the book of Acts, I, I, I don't know if you've noticed it, I hope you've noticed it, but what do you have in chapter number two? You have the gospel. What do you have in chapter number three? You have the gospel. What do you have in chapter number four? This is what the church is doing, isn't it? You have the gospel. Here you have them released from prison. They go to the temple and they announce the words of this life. What do you have is the gospel. And what you have here is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and the mandate, and, we, and we, we're going to say this um, for 28 chapters, and we've been in um, the book of Acts almost a year now, so if you start to do that, we're, we're going to say this for, for the next four years, okay? The main mandate of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the making of maturing of disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You know, they're applying it to ourselves. And we live in a very, uh, I would say, individualistic society where it's all about me, it's all about my truth, it's all about what's right for me. You know, and, and, and we, we go there that when we look at other people, we say that their greatest problem is this. You know, they need a little alteration in their marriage. Their greatest problem is they need their kids to obey. They, they need some structure that happens to be in the home. The greatest need is he needs to find a better job and get out of that toxic situation. Let me tell you the greatest need of any individual on planet Earth is to know Christ, is to have sins forgiven, is to have his relationship a relationship with deity that happens to be above. And let me ask you, do you believe that? And I will even go further. As you sit here this Sunday morning, do you realize right here and right now, even if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your greatest need. Your greatest need is to apprehend what Jesus Christ has done for you and be that testimony, be that witness, rely on all that he is for us. Do you really believe that? So I want to present the gospel. I want to present the truths that the apostles, again, preached again right here. And I want us to really answer the question why they preached Jesus. And you can see that in verses 29 and 30 of the text, because look at what it says. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging, on, hanging him on a tree. And it's incredible to... Uh, 
look at that, isn't it? Because when we look, look at this gospel, somebody's praising God, somebody's saying an amen, and praise God for that. And, uh, and, and it's amazing to look at this because it always comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? It always comes back to Jesus. It always comes back to who he is and what he, what he has done. And here Peter announces him, doesn't he? He's the spokesman of the, of the other uh, 11. They haven't tried to distance himself from them. You know, and I, I also believe when you look at this message, you know, although it's packed with truth and desolate truth, there's no fudging here, there's no fudging there. I think it's done in a spirit, again, of gentleness. It's done in a spirit of love. It's done in a spirit, again, of compassion that these men are so blinded by their sin that they need to see Jesus Christ. And they need to see their arrogance. They need to see their guilt. They need to see their pride, which is the obstacle of truly seeing their need of Jesus Christ. And why do the apostles keep preaching Jesus Christ? You know, and we mentioned this a little bit last time we were together, but this is what they say. Here's Peter's response. We must obey God rather than man. Do you see the choice there? There's a choice, isn't there? There's obedience to God, and there's following man, or following our own hearts, following our own dispositions, or the dispositions of those that happen to be around us. You know what I think is the greatest uh, tragedy in our modern Christianity when it comes to this text, and I'm talking about conservative circles, is the only way that we apply this is with the government. Isn't it true? You know, I think, I think there's a huge amount of those who happen to be in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ whose greatest fear is the government and what's the government going to do, right? As if they're on the throne of everything. Did you see what Trudeau said? Right? Let's spread fear. Right? Did you see the law that they're impacting? Remember our gaze? What's going to come to my family in the future? What kind of life are my children going to have? Right? And many times, I think the way that we do it, I, I think it's answered like this. We cherish Christ so much. We loved Jesus so much. We honor Jesus. We want to magnify and glorify Jesus Christ so much so that it's inconceivable that we would not obey him. Think about that. Think about your own life. You know, because I think a lot of times we want to disobey the government just because we're, not, we're angry at them. It's not because we love Christ. You know, look at what they're doing. Look at the taxes they're taking away from us. Look at, look at how they're making my life more difficult. It's nothing to do with our love for Christ. We're just finding find a text that will somehow gravitate to our anger. You know, they're filled with a love of cherishing Jesus. And I believe this text can be applied in any time we have a command of Scripture, right? right? How about this one? Husbands, love your wives. How? As Jesus Christ loved the church, right? Oh, you should see with my wife. She's so hard. She's so difficult. It doesn't matter, right? Here it is. I cherish Christ so much. I love him so much. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my all. Look what he has done. How could I obey my own heart? How could I obey in any other direction? And we love him. How about women? Right? Women are to be devoted to their husbands as the church. Think about it. Well, it doesn't call me to love him. 
The church doesn't love Jesus Christ? Devoted to, the, to Jesus as the church is devoted to Jesus. Oh, my husband. I, I heard a woman say, and I was telling her, you know, let's go to Ephesians 5. My husband's a buffoon now. And my response to her was, I don't care how big of a buffoon he is. If you love Christ, you can encourage him. You can honor him. You're going to respect him. It is a reflection of your love for Jesus Christ. How, how about children? There's a number of children that happen to begin in our midst. Children, let's look, let's look up here. You know, many of you say this. Many of you say, I love Jesus. I just can't stand my parents. Let me, let me tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's not about your parents. Here's what it's about. I love Christ. Isn't it? Isn't it? Am, am I off base here? I think a lot of times the only thing that we can get is the government. And really it's talking about, oh, there's no thought that we could preach any other message than Jesus. We love him so much. There was no choice regardless of the consequences. Now, think about it right here because you're put, you put in this sort of semicircle of seats that happen to begin up here. There's men that, you know, with all these authority, with all this power that happen to begin right here, looking down upon you. And you know, these are the very men that condemned Jesus to death. And, and all of a sudden, you're commissioned by the angel, you're commissioned by Jesus to preach his gospel. What would come next? Would you find, try and find a point of commonality? You know, uh, we're, there isn't a... Would you try to say and say, well, this is just my opinion. This is how I read the Old Testament. You know, that's not what they do. They preach Jesus in all of his glory. Peter makes known Jesus, 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 Jesus as a great Messiah. In fact, in verse number 30, they say this, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you, (laughs) it doesn't back down, doesn't it? You're bringing his blood upon us, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. And I love the way it starts off, because it starts off that we're not heretics here. Even though we're going on trial for blasphemy, the God of our fathers. This is the same Jehovah, right? This is the same Yahweh. This is the same great I am of the Old Testament. This is the one who is related. This is the one, again, who told of the great coming Messiah, right? And he said, whom God raised up. And when you look at that phrase, whom God raised up, I think, again, a lot of times we think of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it would be easy to think of the resurrection, again, of the Lord Jesus because we realize God the Father did raise Jesus from the grave. But that's not what the text is talking about. What he's doing, again, with these Old Testament men is he's using Old Testament language. And when it says, again, in the Old Testament that God raised up a prophet in the land for such a time like this, God raised, here it is, a priest, or God raised a king up for such a time as this. This is what it's talking about. It's talking about God the Father. Here he is. He sends Jesus Christ into our world. Jesus comes voluntarily. He voluntarily lays down his life. He voluntarily lives that life of joyous obedience to this great God, this worship, again, obedience to his Father, to Adam's be again above. But the one who sent him was God the Father. And why is that so important? It's so important because the gospel is not man's gospel, isn't it? We're so man-centered about it. It's God's gospel. 
right? It is his doing. It's how he has chosen, right? right? Oh, it's for man's needs, man's needs. Yeah, 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 yeah. But ultimately, it's for the glory of God. Look at how grand, look at how glorious, look at how, how merciful, look at how forgiving, look at how righteous he is. It's him, 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 him. It's his gospel, isn't it? And I think a lot of times we forget about it. And it's even taught in the Old Testament. One of the most popular um, uh, prophecies in the Old Testament we preach so much t- at Christmas time is this is Isaiah 9 6, which says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and a government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called. Listen to the names Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Don't you love those titles? Praise God. We could preach, you know, a different sermon. In fact, again, a series of sermons on each one of those titles. And that's what we do usually at Christmas. But let me say uh, a phrase that we miss right at the beginning is this. It says, to us, right? To us a son is given. Right? Who's giving the son? It's God. God the Father. And why is that so important? Why is it so important that God raised, God sent Jesus because of this? Whom you, right? You is personal, isn't it? Whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And they knew it. They knew it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And it's not killing Jesus that would do. They wanted most humiliating the most cursed death that they could think of for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how much hatred went through their veins at this time. And think of it, because here's these men, and they're all cultured, they're all sitting up here, they're looking as if they're analyzing all of this, but these are the very individuals, right? Right? They're all educated, they got their PhDs and everything else. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, on the night again that they had this mock trial, at the end of the trial, they spit on him as no worth. You know, they punched him and slapped him. These are those very men that happen to be again right up there. And it's incredible again to look at because they were guilty before God. And they needed to see their guilt before God. And, and, and I bring back this point again. People are more concerned, like the religious leaders, of the shame before others rather than their guilt before God. And, and let me say, we can all shake our heads. Yeah, that's so true. But how about us? You know, when your kids disobey in public, are you more concerned about their hearts or about your reputation? You know, do you come to church and do you argue all the way to church and then you come in and you have that plastic smile on your face? How's everything going? Just wonderful. Praise Jesus. Right? And what, what are we more concerned about? We're more concerned about how we look, whether there's any shame before God rather than a sin before a holy God. You know, and I wonder if we ever think about that. It is not God's, uh, a God that loves you. Peter's message is not this. It's not this, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It starts with man. man God loves you. It's you. It's you. He starts off with this. God is glorious. God is grand. God is holy, and therefore you are guilty before him, deserving of punishment. And all of us need to stop worrying 
about what others think and start to concentrate on the immensity of my personal sin before God. You know, we've said this many times, but when you look at um, uh, things like sin, judgment, wrath, here it is, the anger of God, that language has disappeared uh, by and large. But what we do is we come and we celebrate the goodness of God, we celebrate the grace of God, you know, we sing, we're joyous, you know, uh, there's no problems, there's no difficulties, you know, and, and, and we don't use that thing. And, and I think we know this, we know this, think about it. We preach about this and we say this, that Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Right? But it goes further. Jesus didn't just talk about hell more than heaven. He described hell more than he described heaven. Utter darkness. The flame that's never quenched. The worm that never dies. And it goes on and on. And have you ever thought about uh, that hell is the antitype of heaven? Everything that heaven is, hell's the exact opposite. That's a scary thought, isn't it? You know, um, we were with friends for a few days that, that we hadn't seen in a long time. And I can remember at the end of it, we all commented on, it just seemed like we were together for an hour. Have you ever had that, that time? Your heart is so full. You know, it's so joyous. It's so great. And can you imagine being in the presence of Jesus? You know, no sin nature. Here we are, no aches and pains, no arthritis, and we're able to enjoy Jesus as much as we can enjoy Jesus. And all of a sudden, a thousand years is going to seem like a day because it's so wonderful. Hell's the antitype. One hour in hell is going to seem like a thousand years. In heaven, we are still finite. There's never a point where we become God and we become infinite. That means, that means we'll learn more about Christ, we'll learn more about his glory, we'll learn more about his sacrifice, we'll learn more about who he is, and therefore our joy will increase, our joy will increase, our joy will increase, our joy will increase. When we first get there, we say, it can't get any better, but it's going to get better and better and better and better. Hell is the exact opposite. People are going to be confirmed in their rebellion. They're going to be confirmed in their sin. They're going to be confirmed in their hatred of Jesus Christ. And as they come under the punishment and wrath of God, they are going to grow not in repentance. Why didn't I see Jesus? They're going to grow in their hatred, their animosity, their anger, their frustration for God for all of eternity. And everything that heaven is. Hell is the exact opposite. And we live in this age of grace, but, but in this age of grace, we cannot sugarcoat the seriousness of sin and the consequences. You have sinned against the majestic glory and eternal value of God, and it was done willfully. I mean, the, the St. Adrian's, you, you know, don't throw it on us. You know, don't get people to hate us because we killed Jesus. We didn't do it. The Romans did it. And remember, there's no need of the Jesus of the Gospels. 
if we don't see something of the depths of our sin before an all-holy and all-righteous God. And what it might seem in the text is an obstinate answer. You know, don't bring this blood blood upon us. You hung him on the cross. It's the most loving thing that Peter could tell them in their life. And I wonder, as we worry about people that happen to be again around us, as we observe these people over here and these people over here and these people over here, when we, when, when we look at our family members, when we look at our children, when we look at our friends, when we look at others, what is their greatest need? What is their greatest need? Right? Are we trying to fix this? Are we trying to fix that? If we were trying to fix this external problem that happens to begin right there, what is their greatest need? And here's the question. What's my greatest need? What is my greatest need? Because here's the thing. People might not recognize they're a sinner, and we might say it's too offensive, it's too offensive, it's too offensive, I'm going to keep quiet, I'm going to keep quiet. But here's the thing you have to realize. People are going to either hear that message here or they're going to hear that message over there. But they will hear the message about the ravages, the cost of their sins. So why do we preach Jesus? We preach Jesus because people are lost. People are sinners. People are deserving of none other than the wrath of God. But here's the amazing thing, because the gospel doesn't stop there, does it? The gospel enters into, and think of these men. If anyone didn't deserve it, it was these men. But think about it, because the gospel ends in the superabounding, and I don't know how else to say it, because I think words fail, the superabounding grace of God. And we'll look at verses 31 and 32 of our text. It says, God exalted him at the right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father is the greatest vindication of the work and person of the Lord Jesus. You know, and think about it, because these religious leaders have that witness before them, don't they? They might not have seen the resurrected Christ, but here's reliable witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. They might might not have seen the miracles, but they know enough people who have witnessed the miracles of Jesus. In fact, these men are in front of them. How did they get in front of them? Why weren't they intimidated by all of this? Why did they willfully come? How did they get out of prison? And it speaks again about the validity of Christianity. But here's the thing. If we never admit our sin, if we never admit our misdeeds, if we never admit how offensive that is before a holy God, that becomes the barrier to not seeing the massive, the glorious, the grand, the immensity of the grace of God that's given to us through the man, through the God-man, Jesus Christ. You know, and I love what he calls uh, Jesus in verses 31 because he calls him by a doodle title, doesn't he? He calls him this. He calls him the leader, and here it is, and savior. Do you see that? Now, what do we mean by leader? And we would say somebody who leads us, right? He, He goes, and we follow. And certainly that connotation is in this Greek word, but it's so much more. In fact, let me just read Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 10. Let's just put it up there. Now, here's Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 10. The word leader is in there. The same Greek word that's used back in, uh, back in Acts. 
Now, can, can, can you spot it? Let me read the verse. Okay, okay, here it is. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, what's the word there? The word is founder. Same word, right? He's the founder, right? And as founder, I look to Jesus for everything that I need in salvation. I look to him again for forgiveness. I look again at what he has accomplished, his perfect life. And as he goes, here's the idea again of following again. Here's the idea of leadership. As he goes, as he instructs, I follow, I believe, I trust, I base my life upon. Right? And he's a leader, and he's also the Savior. And I think I do not know of a more precious, right? He's Lord and here is Savior. And I do not know if there's a more precious title of the Lord Jesus than this, than Savior. I mean, think of it, because we use that term, Jesus, Savior, Savior. We go thus, Savior, many times speaking of Jesus, just shorthand. But have we ever thought about the message of it? Because the message Savior means that I need to be saved from something. I am in such a perilous situation that I cannot save myself. Think of it. If you're in a 20-story building and all of a sudden there's fire in the first 15 floors and I lit the fire and I'm at the top floor, you know, and, and there's burning, it's raging, it's coming closer and closer. Let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I cannot save myself, right? I need to be saved. I need somebody, again, to get a ladder or whatever it happened to be, put it up top, and come save me. And Jesus is my fireman. You know, and, and here's the amazing thing, too, is I'm up the top floor. I'm up there in my rebellion. I'm up there saying I don't need the Savior. And he works effectively in my heart to show me my need, my sin in my life, so that I might be saved. And he's the absolute and efficacious Savior. You know, many times we, we concentrate on his um, perfect life. Jesus never sinned, and therefore he can be our substitute. But guess what? Why didn't Jesus uh, suffer for all of eternity? Because my sin deserves an eternity in hellfire. Why didn't Jesus suffer for all of eternity? Why just for the few hours on the cross of Calvary? And this is why. It's because of the immensity because of the glory because of the value of the one who happens to be dying is not just man but here he is it's God in one sense we can't say this that God died for our sins in another sense we can say because there's a fusion of natures right here God died for our sins let that grip you with the immensity, again, of the love that happens to be in Lord Jesus Christ. And we realize why he's a leader, why he is the Savior, because look at the call here. It's to give, what? Repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, think of what they're struggling with. They're struggling with sin. They're struggling with the, uh, uh, seeing their sins. And let me just say, say this. When he says to give to Israel, remember, this is a historical book. What he's preaching to is he's not preaching to the nations here. He's preaching to Israel. In fact, when you look at Jerusalem, the gospel hasn't gone out. It hasn't gone out to Judea, it hasn't gone out to Samaria, and it hasn't gone out to the uttermost parts of the world. So he says, to give to Israel. In other words, here's the leaders of Israel. And you have to realize why Jesus came, why he suffered, why he died. And this is why to give. And give is, is basically this, a charis, right? It's a grace gift that's given. 
an ability to do something that if this gift wasn't given, I wouldn't be able to do, and that is to repent. Right? And then he says something like this that I think a lot of people think is strange. For the forgiveness of sins. I thought we were saved by faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Pastor, preach on a solace. Right? And if that's what you thought, you're absolutely right. But when you look at conversion, conversion has two sides. One's repentance and one is faith in Christ. If you can think about this, there's a new relationship with sin that I had that I never had before. And there's a new relationship with Jesus that I had that I never had before. And repentance is seeing my sin. I see what it deserves. I see how heinous it is. I see how ugly it is. And although we still sin, although we still struggle with sin that happens beginning in our life, there is a new relationship with sin. There is a new thought about sin. There's an uncomfortable attitude with sin in my life that I never had before because I realized before a holy God what it deserves. And I realize that Jesus Christ is the only answer. There's a new relationship with sin. And that's what they're struggling with. You know, and and we, so when you look at the interchangeableness through the book of Acts, sometimes when the gospel call goes forth, it says put faith in Christ. Sometimes when the gospel call goes forth, it's repentance of sin. But it's the same call. In fact, in the Great Commission over in Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse number 45, listen to how it is because we're familiar with Matthew chapter 28, right? But listen to Luke chapter 24. He says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, here's the commission. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the grave and that repentance, here's here's the language, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What's the call? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here, they're given this message. Through repentance and belief, right? Those two aspects that happen to begin there. And, and I'm afraid... You know, on any given Sunday morning, when we look at all the churches that happen to be through Windsor, all the churches that happen to be through Canada, if you were to preach a message in the book of Acts, the gospel that's presented in the book of Acts, it'd be absolutely foreign to a lot of people who call themselves believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the gospel. This Jesus cannot be ignored. Our sin cannot be ignored. And he comes to the end of this mini-sermon with a great hope for these men, the great hope for this Christ-hating world, with God's grace. And he says, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, obey him basically means this. The gospel is not an offer, right? The gospel, again, what is a command? Believe, trust, repent, right? It, it's a command, You know, and I love this because it tells us the Spirit of God has given to those who obey. In other words, the reason why we obey, salvation is all of God. He uses our efforts. He uses the preaching of God's word. But what he does is open up her heart. He takes that gospel message and he makes it effective. So much so that the light's going, ah, I see it. Ah, I see my sin. I see how awful. I see Christ. I recognize what he's done. And I recognize that there is no other way. 
and think of it. Because some of the people you work with, some of your family members, you look at them and you say, uh-uh, there's no way that they're going to come with Christ, to Christ. And I might as well not even be bothered. You ever say that to yourself? Well, a lot of you are more holy than me. <laughs> and we have to be reminded that the author of salvation is our great God. And he can turn any heart that he wants to turn. You know, and I love this passage of scripture, right? Right? Here it is. God the Father sends the Son. Here it is, the Son, right? The triune God. Son comes, executed for our sins, risen from the grave, ascends into heaven, and the Spirit comes. It makes that whole message effectual in our lives and in the lives of those that we preach to. The greatest message, the most important message that any person could ever hear, your spouse, your children, your friends, your coworkers, your fellow church members, the most necessary message that they need to hear today is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I plead with us as Emmanuel Baptist Church, I plead with us as Emmanuel Baptist Church to keep central what is central, to keep the commission that God has given to the church of making and maturing disciples for the ultimate glory of our Christ. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. What an amazing text, Lord. What a glorious text. Father, in our multifaceted lives of living under the fall and seeing the damage that is done all around us, we can so easily think that our greatest problem, the greatest problem of those that happen to begin around us, is something external. Maybe it's a better spouse. Maybe it's obedient children. Maybe it's a different job with less pressure that happens to begin on our shoulders. Lord, as we look at those that happen to begin around us, Lord, we many concentrate maybe on life-dominating sins of others, and if we would just get over it, if they would just straighten up. But Lord, the greatest need for us is to recognize our own internal sin. Lord, and the great grace that's found in one place, in one place alone, and that is in Christ, through simple repentance, turning from sin, Lord, hating that sin and trusting Christ. And I pray, Lord, if there's any that happen to begin unsaved here this morning, Lord, that, uh, that have never trusted you, that this would be the day that the Spirit works so effectively in the hearts that they become obedient to that message, that they trust in Jesus Christ. And I pray for a congregation, Lord. We go through suffering, we go through difficulty, Lord, we're bumped this direction and that direction, and we can so easily take our eyes off Christ and not recognize the centrality of our mission, why you've put us in the situations and circumstances that we are put in, to make much of him, to show forth the glory of his gospel. Just be with us now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Brother.
Thanks, Pastor, for that message. We're going to continue 